All right. 2 Samuel 14. The whole theme of 2 Samuel is a heart after God. And uh, we saw a really good track for David, and then uh, David fell, and now we're dealing with the fallout of uh, David's sin. And while David seems to have dealt with his lust problem, we don't ever see him adding wives and after this uh, problem with Bathsheba. Um, one of the, the negatives, though, we do see about David's life is he never seems to have dealt with his parenting problem. He was always more concerned, at least from what the Scriptures reveal to us, he was always, or he always seems more concerned about how he felt rather than what was best for the family. And while every child makes their own decisions, that is a recipe for failure when it comes to parenting. If you're more concerned with how, how your decisions are going to make you feel, um, you know, then being obedient to the Lord. And so while David hasn't gone to, to war to capture Absalom to make him answer for his murder uh, of his brother, David's actions for the next five years are, each one of them are a wrong turn, and they end up fueling the fire of Absalom, and they lay the seeds for the civil war that we're going to see in a few chapters. So chapter 14, we're going to look at three angry men here, and uh, hopefully we will learn what not to do from them and then look at some Scripture about, you know, what the Bible says about how to handle situations like this in your life. So Second Samuel 14, we begin in verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom, And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said to her, I pray you, feign yourself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not yourself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And Come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. This is in response to the last words of chapter 13 where it says, And King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. And we talked about this, that the word there, longed, is not like longed in a good way. It's this is a bad way. But he holds himself back because of the fact that he, over time, he he begins to get comforted even though he never gets over uh, Amnon's murder. Um, because of his grief, David had stalled ramping up the war effort to capture Absalom, but then as time caused him to realize how his failures had played a part in the horrors that occurred, that's what the word comforted means. Um, it means you begin to reflect on and, 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 and realize the, the, the wrongs you've done and you want to do differently. As time gave him the chance to consider those things, he brought the mobilization completely to a halt. And so now we're in this position where Absalom's in a foreign country, but David's not going to go get him. He's not going to make him answer for his crimes, but he's also not pardoning him. And so when Joab, the son of Zeruiah, this is David's nephew Joab, is uh, the commander of his armies, he perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom, he comes up with this plan. The word toward here actually means against So he realizes that David is still angry, despite the fact that he realizes that he played a big part in in the problem that uh, Amnon and Absalom went through uh, that ended up in Tamar's uh, rape and then uh, Amnon's murder. Um, Despite that, he's still angry at Absalom. David is angry. He is angry for uh, Absalom not telling him what Amnon did to Tamar when it happened, and he's angry at the reason why. He's angry that he realizes that Absalom planned to murder Amnon and get his own justice rather than turn it over to David. And so David's thought process in this is, how can I be restored to somebody like that? I mean, is Absalom even repentant? And so David just says, he decides to do nothing, which seems to be a common parenting technique for David. And Joab, he realized letting this stew was not good. Because if Absalom thought reconciliation was impossible, he might see the only path forward as convincing other nations to rebel against David and then supporting him as their new king who would treat his neighbors better. Well, in Joab's mind, he's only got two choices go to war and deal with the criminal, or forgive him. 
And since he knew David wasn't willing to go to war over this, he comes up with a plan to convince David to pursue reconciliation. And so in verse 2, it says, He sent to Tekoa uh, unto and fetched from there, he brought from there a wise woman. Uh, Tekoa is a city in the highlands of Judah, about five miles south of Bethlehem. That's David and Joab's hometown, uh, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Amos the prophet who wrote the book of Amos uh, was from there, from Tekoa. And this woman, it mentioned she was wise. She was, the word there means shrewd. She was a skilled craftsman when it came to life and politics. This was a woman who would know how to weave her way through a sticky situation with the king. Since Joab was from Bethlehem, it's possible he might have known this woman's reputation and that she was the one best suited for his plan. And so he tells her when he brings her in, he goes, here's my plan. I want you to pretend to be a mourner and put on now mourning clothing. They would wear special clothing to reflect they were mourning and anoint not yourself with oil. In other words, don't, don't put on the perfumes, the oil. Be like a woman who has been a long time mourning for those she's lost. And then come to the king and speak to him this way. I'm going to tell you what to say. And so the idea is this is a woman who's in mourning who's going to come to seek an audience with the king. So this woman from Tekoa, she's not named, she accepts Joab's proposal, and she gains a meeting with the king, verse 4. It says, and when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, help, O king. And the king, David, he says unto her, what ails you? And she answers, I am indeed a widow woman, and my husband is dead. The idea when she comes to the king and falls on her face and says, help, O king, it's a cry that an injustice has been done to her and she does not have the power to fix it. Why does she not have the power to fix it? She is a widow woman. Her husband is dead. I love how she says the word indeed, which means of a truth, this is who I am, which is not the truth at all. But she's a very good actor here. She deserves whatever awards they give for this. Now, being a widow woman who has no husband, in other words, she's not remarried. That's what, you know, my husband's dead. I don't have, you know, I'm still a widow. I don't, have, I don't have a husband to care for me. This puts her on the lowest rung of social status in Israeli society. If you're a woman, you're already at a disadvantage because it's, it's not like today. You couldn't just go get a job or anything. Um, she's a widow with no husband to defend her. So, Only the highest authority could rectify the bad situation she finds herself in. That's why she's coming to the king. So what happened to her? Verse 6. Your handmaid had two sons, and they strove together in the field. They had a quarrel that came to physical blows. And there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen up against your handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also. And so they shall quench my coal which is left and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. So this is her dilemma. First, she explains what happened to her. I had two sons. And they had a quarrel that came to physical blows, but they were out in the field. No one else was around, it says, to part them. It means to create space between them. I I had the most bizarre experience, uh, definitely a top 10 bizarre experience in my life um, this week uh, at uh, Epcot. my, my, uh, my kids, uh, their, their foster mom um, was coming into town who had had them before we adopted them. And, uh, and she, uh, we were going to, you know, get to, they would get to see him. We we're going to surprise. We got to hang out. It was a wonderful time. And as we're getting pizza in Italy, all of a sudden this full-on brawl breaks out. Like, like not like people just yelling at each other, like full-on fists flying, you know? Like, and and I'm, I'm a man, and, and my general tendency is to step in, and, and I took one step, my wife looked at me, and I was like, oh, don't do that, Will. <laughs> Think first. <laughs> and then I was all frazzled at that point in time, so I'm, I'm trying to hit my phone. I'm like, why is 911 not working? Why is it asking me for four digits? Because I didn't put in my passcode, and I wasn't smart enough to hit emergency in any way. You don't need to know all that information. <laughs> don't count on me in a crisis unless I can actually get in there. So, uh, but 
It was bizarre, fists, there was no one stepping in. And I mean, two women were going at it, and then three guys were going at it. I mean, just full-on fists flying, people knocking over trash cans. It was crazy. And I'm looking around going, where is security? I'm like, is no, is no one seeing this, you know? So I told my, my oldest daughter afterwards, I said, I said, well, you've seen your first public brawl. Congratulations, you know. This was a similar situation. No one was able there, well, no one was there who, who could, you know, stand in between. <clears throat> you know, whenever we take action that's based in anger, something is destroyed. Whenever we take action that is based in anger, something is destroyed in the process. And, and this is why Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and sin not right? It tells us not to sin with anger because anger is only intended to destroy evil, you know? The problem is, is when we sin with anger, uh, Proverbs 25 describes what happens to us. Proverbs 25, 28, it says, he that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Yeah. When I don't control my anger, all my defenses are gone, and I end up wrongly destroying something. Oftentimes, these types of disasters are avoided simply by someone else who intervenes to create space, and then tempers can cool, and the person can get, think clearly again, realizing they're about to do something awful. But the fictional account here is no one was there to create that space for them, and so something awful did happen. One of the sons was killed. Now, I realize, again, this story is fabricated, but we see it all the time. I just saw it, you know, this week. Tempers flare, awful decisions are made, and tragedy occurs. And so, this is why we must obey God's command to not sin with anger. Now, why do we get angry? The Bible tells us the answer for that too. James chapter 4, if you'll turn there real quick. I'm, I only say that because we're going to return to it again at the end of the message. <clears throat> From whence come wars, verse 1 says, in James chapter 4. Where do wars come from? Where do fightings among you come from? Do they not come hence, come from this even, or from this location, even of your lusts that war and your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. In other words, we want something and we can't have it, and so we go to take it. That's anger. Anger goes to take it. And so we end up destroying something in the process of getting what we want. Now, sometimes what I want might even be a good thing, right? I want you to stop saying that, or I want you to stop being rude to me, or I want you to stop being unkind. I want you to stop disobeying the, you know, the, the family rules, right? And sometimes the thing we want is a good thing. But when we take it into our own hands to take it, we end up doing damage somehow. And so, whether it's on a national, societal, or a personal level, people get angry because they want something but can't have it. Now, God created us in His image, which means since the Bible tells us at times He gets angry, He created us. He's the one who created us with the capacity for anger. Now, God's anger only destroys things that need to be destroyed. And so, we must always keep that in mind, that the the capacity we have for anger is not for taking vengeance, it's not for bringing about my own will, and it's not to take what someone won't give me. That's not the purpose of anger. And so if you have an anger problem tonight, you know, you must repent. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because self-control is the only answer for a loose temper. If you don't repent you're going to end up destroying the wrong things. And to be honest, you probably likely already started doing so. 
Now, if this tragedy wasn't, I mean, tragedy, it didn't really happen, but if if this tragedy wasn't bad enough for this woman, she explains now the fallout from this, this, you know, this fight and this death. Verse 7, and behold, the whole family has risen against your handmaid. My whole family has turned against me. And they have said, deliver him that smote his brother that we may kill him. Why? For the life of his brother whom he slew. In that culture, vengeance was considered a binding responsibility. You killed my father, prepare to die. You know, that's just how, how it was. It still is that way, by the way. You know, it still is that way. Um, motive doesn't matter. Whether it was a mistake or not, or you premeditated, doesn't matter. If you kill my kin, I must avenge them by killing you. And because this was a family matter, they were demanding that she turn him over to mob justice. The family will deal with this. And so she explains, if this happens, she goes, and we will destroy the air also, and so they shall quench my coal that is left. I only got, this is the only fire I got left is my son. It's the only thing I'm living for is the fact that, you know, he's going to carry on our family name, and, and you know, he'll have kids someday, and, and, and you know, our, our inheritance will go forward. In contrast, she says, this will quench my soul which is left, and it shall not leave to my husband uh, neither name nor remainder, any, any remnant, any descendants upon the earth. With no husband and no descendants left, her family would cease to exist. And so what she's asking for from David is a pardon from the highest authority, one that could tell her family to back off. Because then if someone were to harm her son, they would have to deal with David's justice. Well, verse 8, David grants her request. And the king said unto the woman, go to your house, and I will give charge concerning you. The word charge there means a command. I'll give a command or an order concerning your situation. Now, we'll go to your house. You think, well, that's kind of cold. It's not cold at all. In fact, it's probably one of the most comforting things David could say. Because in Israel, a family's inheritance was their land where their house was. You know, and their inheritance wasn't from father to son. It was from God to that family. That was his gift to them, their inheritance from God. So to send her back home is saying, go back to your inheritance. I won't take and let anyone take it from you. I'll give some orders, and that'll, you'll have some paperwork. It'll explain, and nobody will, nobody will bother you anymore. Now, in a normal situation, that would probably be enough. But since this is a fabricated scenario, it's not what she's after because it doesn't really exist. She, you know, she has a confession here that, you know, from David that he'll help her, but that's not what she's looking for. She's looking for something more. She's looking for David to openly say that, that you know, he is determined to deliver guilty sons from angry family members. He's determined to, uh, she's determined to get him to verbalize that. And so in verse 8, she, or verse 9, she says, And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me, and on my father's house the king and his throne be guiltless. Lord, you know, I realize you're probably looking at this thinking, you know, well, this woman's coming here, and, you know, her son probably deserves to die, da 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 you know, and, and, you know, but, you know, if you have to take, do something, you know, if you have to in, invoke some punishment, you know, well, then invoke it upon me. Kill me or kill my, my, someone in my father's house, you know, uh, and that way you'll be guiltless. No one would think anything ill of you. You wouldn't be making any compromises here. Do you, do you see what she's trying to do? She's trying to elicit a, a stronger statement on behalf of his decision. If anyone thinks you've done an injustice, you know, punish me. I don't care as long as my line is preserved. And again, this would be a, normally a bold statement for someone to make because she's basically suggesting that you know, David might be unwilling to go the extra mile to protect people normally, you know, in this type of situation. That this might actually put him in danger of people thinking he was compromising. But David, in verse 10, he's going to reassure her that his decision is right. No, I'm not just doing this because I, I have compassion on you. This is a, the right thing to do. And I'm going to defend you and your family against anyone who disagrees. Look at verse 10. The king said, whosoever says ought to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. The word there, touch, you know, means to strike or even bother, you know. Now, that's a stronger statement, but it's not quite far enough to accomplish what Joab's trying to do. So she brings up one more issue. 
She asked David to back up his agreement with an oath to the Lord. Verse 11. Then said she, I pray you, let the king remember the Lord your God, that you would not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. Please, one more thing. That's what I pray you means. Please, just one more request. I trust in the word of my king, but the Lord hasn't been brought into this discussion. Would you confirm your decision, your commitment to me with an oath to him? And David does. The king says, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of your son fall to the earth. As the Lord lives, that's the strongest oath an Israeli can make. As sure as God's alive, and that's what they all believe. They believe he's real. He's not just a, a little idol or something like that like the other gods. He's a, he's a real being. And so what David has now just openly confessed with an oath to God is that this is the right way to handle this kind of situation. And so Joab's trap is now set, and now she's going to spring it. Look at verse 12. Then the woman said, let your handmaid, I pray you, speak one word unto my Lord. I'm thinking, lady, you've already asked me three different things. But David says, say on. I got one more concern, king. He says, okay. And the woman says, wherefore, why? Why then have you thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king does speak this thing as one which is faulty, and that the king does not fetch home again his banished. Ooh. In other words, if this is your, the word there, uh, thought, uh, where, where she says here in verse 13, why have you then thought? It actually means to devise, plan, or take a course of action. If this is how you feel about this and you've, you know, you've confirmed it with an oath to God, if this is your thought on what's right in these situations, then why have you devised a plan? Why have you acted in such a way that is opposed to the people of God and that you haven't brought home your banished, Absalom. <laughs> she says, I mean, it almost sounds like you're just doing this because you feel guilty. The king, that's where the word there that uh, the king speaks this thing as one which is faulty. It means one who has laden himself with guilt. You know, are, are you just doing this for me? Or do you really believe this? Or are you just doing this for me because you feel guilty about how you messed up in the situation with your son? Now, the parallel between Absalom and Amnon is not one-to-one with the situation she described. Absalom committed a similar crime, but his was premeditated, whereas the other situation seems to be not. And yet, even though it's not one-to-one, it is similar enough that she can bring up her point. David, you, you showed me mercy and my son mercy. Here you confirmed it with an oath saying this is the right thing to do but you haven't even done that with your own son. Is the king only rendering this verdict because he's got a guilty conscience? Why not fix the situation with Absalom too? Because after all, O king, life is short. Look at verse 14. For we must needs die, and we are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. We must needs die. Literally in the Hebrew, it means we are dying to die. Now, that doesn't mean we're, man, I'm dying to die. That's not what that means. But the idea is, is we're in the process of dying and it will end with our death. A death that does not, can't just be recovered. Every day of life is a march toward death. And when it happens, it's like water on the ground. You can't get it back. Life's precious, O king. And neither does God respect any person, yet does he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. (laughs) You know, she says to him, God's not going to give you a pass on this, David, because he's not like this. The way you've treated Absalom, that's not how our God is. And you know what? (laughs) Despite your anger, he's got a plan to bring Absalom back because that's the right thing to do, just as you've done the right thing in rescuing me and my son. And so, Finally, she exposes what she's claiming is her real concern. How will I know that you're going to keep your word to little old me, one of the lowest people in Israeli society, when you aren't even willing to do this for your son? Verse 15, now therefore that I am come to speak of this thing unto my Lord the king, it is because the people have made me afraid 
And so your handmaiden said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. And then your handmaid said, well, the word of the Lord, the king, shall now be comfortable. For as an angel of God, so is my Lord, the king, to discern good and bad. Therefore, the Lord your God will be with you. (laughs) She says, I believe you're a godly man, my king. And I believe you'll fix the contradiction and that I won't have to go home fearful thinking that people will say to me, you think David's going to stick up for you, won't even stick up for his own son. And I won't have to worry about that. I'll be able to go home comfortable. It's actually two words there. It means in the direction of a resting place. You know, sometimes you head for the direction of a resting place and you just can't reach it, right? Like other things come up that demand your attention and you can't take the rest that you know you need. But she says, that's what I'm worried about. I'm, you're sending me in a direction to a resting place, but I'm concerned I'm going to go home and I won't find any rest because people won't respect you. They won't honor what I've, you've told me because you have a contradiction going on. And so there's in a sense where she's saying, I know you're a godly man. I believe you're a godly man. I believe you'll correct this contradiction. And if you'll commit to bringing back Absalom, then I'll be able to relax knowing you'll keep your word to me too. Now, this kind of uh, way to approach your king would have taken some serious guts from a woman who is actually in this situation. But she doesn't have to fear being so blunt because Joab's the one to put her up to this. And David sniffs that out as soon as she's done. Verse 18. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray you, the thing that I shall ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, is not this the hand of Joab with you in all this? I smell a rat, and his name's Joab. And the woman answered and said, as your soul... And I I swear, I read this, and I I picture way too much when I read my Bible. I picture her... Oh, my lord the king. (laughs) You know, she's just, you know... You, you know, you are so smart, and I did such a good job. This is wonderful, you know? You're playing a good sport. I did my job. Now you're doing your job. Everybody's happy, you know? As my soul lives, my Lord the King, as your soul lives, my Lord the King, none could turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that uh, my Lord the King has spoken. For your servant Joab, he bade me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your handmaid. You've caught me. <laughs> Well, she definitely deserves some applause, but she remains humble in her reply. And, and, you know, even here she says, you know, no one can turn you to the right hand or the left. Listen, what she's communicating is, I'm not here to try to manipulate you, and neither is Joab. Nobody can change your mind. You're the king. But Joab perhaps thought you might be persuaded by this interaction to reconsider your position on Absalom. And so... At this point, her job is done, and she says, I trust to your wisdom to make the best decision. <laughs> and so she says in verse 20, to fetch about this form of speech has my ser- your servant Joab done this thing, and my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. So good job, O king. I leave the decision in your hands. And so the king said unto Joab, verse 21, she exits and Joab is summoned before the king. And he says, behold now, I have done this thing. In other words, I'm going to go along with what you want. Go, therefore, and bring the young man Absalom again. And so Joab fell to the ground to his face, and he bowed himself, and he thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knows that I have found grace in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. He says, Uncle, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job. You're my king. You'll always be my king. And this is only possible because of your good favor toward me. Now, at this point in time, we would think, good job, Joab. I think everything's going to be good moving forward, right? And that would be normal to think that. It would be normal to think that and to assume that by this action, David has dealt with his anger toward Absalom and and things are going to be able to move forward. But the chapter is not over. David hasn't dealt with his anger. Verse 23. So Joab arose, and he went to Geshur, and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, and saw not the king's face. 
Let him turn actually means let him turn around. In other words, Absalom was headed to the palace to see his father. He says, we're going to talk this out. But David refuses to see him when he finds out Absalom's on the way to the palace. David has still not dealt with his anger. And and by this rebuke towards Absalom, you can come home, but don't talk to me. You can come home, but you still don't have my favor. Well, in doing so, David just continues Absalom's exile at home. And this failure, again, David does, does nothing, you know. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't really take any action. And this failure to correctly deal with his anger plants seeds that will eventually create much heartache for David. Because despite David's disfavor towards Absalom, you know, it tells us up in, in uh, chapter 13 uh, in verse 37 that David mourned for Amnon every day. David never got over is the loss of Amnon. He, he may have been a, a rapist and, and all sorts of horrible things, but it was still his son. And he never got over the way that Absalom handled this. And so he was still angry. But even though David was angry, the rest of Israel thought really highly of Absalom. Look at verse 25. It says, But in all Israel there was none to be so praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He never even had acne. <laughs> Literally, when it says that there was uh, none so, so much to be praised for his beauty, it means he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. Listen, good looks don't just get a person ahead in our day and age. They always have. People treat them differently. And they did with Absalom. And it mentions he had this glorious, luxurious hair, you know, like, like Fabio. I don't even know if he's still around, but Fabio's got nothing on him, you know. When he pulled his head, when he got a haircut, for it was at every year's end that it was pulled, like it was some big deal. It's like, hey, it's time for Absalom's haircut. Want to go watch? When it's it time for him to have his haircut... Because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he had to cut it. Realize, you know, we, I mean, I don't know, some of you guys probably need a haircut, but, um, you know, most of us, we tend to do some type of a haircut at some point in time. We have some type of a regular, you know, style to how we, whether we shave or whether we get a haircut or something, um, you know, whether somebody puts a bowl around our head and turns the razor on, whatever, you know. You know, most of us have some type of a regular routine where we, we manicure the, the, you know, the, the, the head, the hair on our head, you know, the hair on our face. Um, and so that, however, was not the case back then. Um, you just kind of let your hair grow, and, and most guys, you know, probably couldn't have it be heavy like this, but Absalom had really luxurious hair, and so he had to get it cut every year uh, because it weighed heavy on him. It's rough being Absalom. And he weighed the, weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, we don't know what the king's weight is. 200 normal shekels is about nine pounds. I, I don't know how you make hair weigh nine pounds. Uh, that's just probably not the correct measurement because it mentions it's after the king's weight. We don't know what that number is. But whatever it was, that's a lot of hair. It's, a, it's some heavy hair. And so, you know, he was just the guy that people looked at and, you know, he looked at you and his eyes sparkled and his teeth sparkled and his face sparkled and his hair sparkled and people loved him. And not only that, but he had the sympathy of the nation. Verse 27, and unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a woman of fair countenance. I said earlier that David had good looks in his DNA and his kids had it too. But the idea here is, oh, he named his daughter after his sister. His sister, who in that culture as a single childless woman was basically considered the living dead. Oh, look how much he loved his sister. His daughter will, will live the life she couldn't. What a great guy. And now you add to that sympathy David's mistreatment, verse 28. And so Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, and he saw not the king's face. Now, 
That means five years without seeing his father. Three years in exile at his grandfather's kingdom, and now two years in basically house arrest, you know, in Jerusalem. Five years without seeing your father. Five years of the disfavor of the king. And you know what? Five years of all the facts of his premeditated murder to begin to lose its place in people's minds. I'm always amazed at two things, two things, at least in our culture, in the United States. The ability of false teachers to somehow find their way to a following again, and the ability of politicians to somehow find their way into people's hearts again. Two things that absolutely baffle me all the time. Something will come out about what somebody did, and they'll get absolutely crushed. And then like 10 years later, they're on TV pitching something. You're just like, what is that guy doing on there? You know, he, he took advantage of multiple women. Why, are we, why is he a guest speaker? Why do we even have him anywhere, you know? Why is he not in jail? And then we find the same exact things with, with false teachers, you know? Comes out they took money or they've been having affairs or they're, they've been, you know, they're just bad teachers and all these things come out. And all of a sudden they pop up again and they're just, let me tell you about Jesus. And I'm like, do people not remember? We forget. We forget. And we have become, in our particular culture, a whole lot more focused on, well, what's the latest thing that's happened? Right? Oh, the president's, you know, way down here with his approval rating. Yeah, wait how it looks in two years. People forget. People forget. And during these five years, people are going to start talking. And Absalom's going to stew. And so five years later, his anger finally bubbles over, and he summons Joab to give his father an ultimatum. Verse 29. Therefore, because of the fact that David refused to speak to him for two more years, therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king. And demand, you're going you're, you're to grant me an audience with the king. <laughs> but Joab wouldn't come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore, he, Absalom, said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Now, Joab had reasons for instigating Absalom's return. He, he believed that was the best decision for the kingdom. But make no mistake, if it's going to come between a choice between David and Absalom, the choice is David. Joab's loyalty is to his uncle. He is one of the most fiercely loyal individuals to David, to the point where he will go overboard at times to protect David, where David frequently fires him in the Scriptures from his position. He, he will, will have times where David's pulling his hair out, and he's like, oh, my, my nephews, what, what kind of animals are you? Why do you act this way? I don't need you to do that. It's like you, you go out to defend me and you just go the 45th mile ahead. Joab's brother, the one that's still alive, you know, when David's fleeing from Absalom later on, and some guy's throwing rocks at David and from a hilltop and cursing at him. And, you know, and, and his nephew just turns to David and goes, you want me to go lift his head off his shoulders? That'll shut him up. See how his head talks when it's laying on the ground. And, and Joab just, I mean, uh, David just turns to me and he goes, what am I going to do with you sons of Zariah? I don't even want to call you my nephews. It's like you're not even related to me. It's like we're not even cut from the same mold. Who would think that? Why would you think I'd want you to do that? But those, while many times wrong reactions, they're rooted in a deep loyalty and love for David. And so if David, <laughs> if David wants to talk to Absalom, he'll summon Absalom. And so he's, I'm not playing middleman. You can send everybody you want. I'm not coming. I don't care what your ultimatum is. But as we see, Absalom won't be deterred. And in his anger, he's going to now add destruction of property to his resume of crimes. That includes murder. Go and, you know, hey, see, you know, look over there. Is that Joab's field? He's got some barley over there? Yeah, yeah, Absalom, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Go burn it. And they go do it. 
What kind of people work for Absalom? They're willing to break all sorts of laws for him. Hey, kill my brother. Sure, buddy. You know, go set my, my uh, I don't know what it be. So David's son, Joab is a nephew. Is that a cousin? Second cousin? Something like, anyway, go and burn my, 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 my family members, you know, barley field. Okay. What kind of people work for Absalom that they're willing to break all sorts of laws? The same people who eventually participate in a coup. Well, (laughs) David's angry. Absalom's angry. Now Joab's angry. So verse 31, then Joab arose and he came to Absalom unto his house and he said unto him, why have your servants set my field on fire? What is wrong with you? Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I sent unto you, saying, Come hither that I may send you to the king. Uh, saying, Come hither that I may send you to the king. To say, Why am I come from Gesher? Why did you come get me? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. I'm done living like a man with no path forward. I'm angry enough that you need to bring me to see the king, even if it means I'm executed for the things I've done. That's my ultimatum, because I'm not going on living like this. Now, while Absalom may have had good reason to be angry about his situation, is being executed really better than his current life? Is it? We read in our scripture reading from Psalm 37, and I'm going to reference just verse 8 here. Cease from anger... And forsake wrath. Fret not yourself in any wise to do evil. It ties these two things together anger and evil actions. Right? Cease from anger. You're heading down a path of anger that's going to lead you to make a wrong decision, a bad decision. So put the brakes on. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Leave it behind. Put it down and leave it behind. Do not fret yourself. Do not work yourself into this angry frenzy to the point where you're going to do something wrong. Anger clouds our judgment and it induces us to make poor decisions. Were David's actions good? No. No, not at all. If he was still upset at Absalom, he should have brought him in and hashed it out. Ignoring a person because you're angry with them isn't a right response to the wrong that they've done. But when someone mistreats you, responding with an ultimatum like this is not the right answer either. When someone mistreats us, we're supposed to take that hurt, that worry, that fear, and that anger to the Lord. We're supposed to look to His Word about how to react to it. And we're to entrust the situation to His justice and to his care when we decide on a right course of action to take. We must not work ourselves into a frenzy and then end up repaying evil with more evil. I'd rather be dead than have this job, or I'd rather be dead than be in this marriage, or, you know, I'd rather be dead than, and than have this kind of life are real thoughts we can have sometimes, but they are foolish thoughts. We just read a few verses earlier. Absalom's got, he's got, I'm guessing a wife. It doesn't mention her, but a wife and three boys and a daughter, at least. Do you really think they'd rather him be dead? And thus we come back to James chapter 4, verse 2, when it comes to anger. James chapter 4, verse 2. says you lust, but you don't have it. You kill and desire to possess, desire to have, but you can't obtain. You don't see the means. You fight, you battle, you war. That's what it means to battle. And yet you still don't have it because you're not asking. And the idea is asking the Lord for it. 
And so we go to verse three. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. I don't think my wife would feel special if I said to her, you know, I just selfishly lust after you all day. Like I want you to do this for me and this for me and this for me and this for me and this for me. That's, that's what I think about when I think about you. I don't think she'd feel appreciated if, I, if that's what I said. And yet, by our actions, we can say those types of things to the people in our sphere of influence. Sinful anger is rooted in selfishness. And when I let anger have control, what happens is I begin to forget about how my actions will affect everybody else. Do not live that way. Cease from anger. Do not fret yourself to the point where you take a wrong course of action, sinful course of action. Now, whether or not Joab <laughs> agrees with Absalom's melodrama here, he understands that Absalom does have a point, and so he brings the message to David. Verse 33, 2 Samuel 14, we'll close it out here. And so Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king. So it works. I mean, Absalom gets what he wants in a sense that, you know, Joab tells David, and David says, go bring him. And so he sends word for Absalom, come, come to the palace. You got your wish. And so Absalom, he comes, and he says he bows himself on his face to the ground before the king. It's fascinating. Absalom's bluster is all gone now. Yeah, now when you realize, I kind of like my head where it is. Kind of like my heart pumping blood throughout the veins and keeping me alive. His bluster is gone. He comes with humility, and we see that David finally forgives. It says, and the king kissed Absalom. And so, it would appear that David and Absalom reconcile. From David's perspective, everything we read about from this point on seems that David did finally deal with his anger. But what we will learn is that Absalom never forgave David for those five years. He never forgave David. Whatever reconciliation occurred was only one-sided. And thus, the seeds that David planted for the last five years are going to begin to break out of the ground shortly thereafter. But to see that, you've got to come back next Sunday. We'll do chapter 15 and see what the Lord has for us there. So let's all stand. <clears throat> My dad, before he got saved, was a very angry man. Um, I was terrified of my father. Um, and it wasn't like terrified of getting a spanking or anything like that. I was terrified of the anger, the yelling, you know, and the, just the rage that would, you know, come into his heart and into his behavior, his demeanor, the way he'd look at me like he's going to kill me. And I swore to myself, I said, I'd never be that way with my kids. And had our first child and, you know, if you have one kid, I like what one comedian said, you're not really a parent because if something happens, you know who did it. And so I really purposed in my heart to always stay calm, and I, I did a really good job. I just, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm doing well. And then, you know, when our second child was born, <laughs> he was not as agreeable as the first one. And, uh, and so we, we had some unique challenges as he started growing up, and, and then we had our third child, and I became, because of just the stress of life and, and stuff, I, I became a very angry man. And I remember my wife telling me at one point in time, she says, Will, when you look at us, me or the kids, when you're upset, you look like you're going to kill us. And I remember coming to the Lord and crying out to him and saying, God, what happened to me? I, I wasn't an angry man. 
And the Lord had to begin revealing to me. He's like, well, there are things you want that you're not getting. You, you don't like where your marriage is here, here, and here. You don't like where your relationship with your kids are here and here. You don't like your job situation here, here, and here. And, and so everything is this lashing, lashing out, you know, when things don't go the way that you want them to go. And I remember being in a place I'd never been in my life where I, that had not been an issue for me and having to cry out to God to take this anger out of my heart and help me to be a person that would, would not be, you know, when something doesn't go my way, that I go, yes, it will. Yes, it will. You know, and a long journey. <laughs> a long journey to learn to, you know, soften my face again. So I have my heart, I have this maelstrom inside again to give things to the Lord and say, Lord, if you don't want this for me, then maybe it's because it's not good for me. And to learn to be content with what God did allow into my hands. And so if that's you tonight, you know, I want to encourage you. God can change a man, change a woman. If you've got these challenges, he can work in your life. But you've got to You've got to, he's already taken the first step. You've got to respond now, you know. He's spoken to you tonight. Now you've got to respond to that. You've got to be willing to come to a place where you can say, God, I'm content with what you have allowed into my life. I'm not going to lust for all these things. I'm not going to try to take all these things. I'm not going to battle for these things anymore that I think I need or I want. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you in these areas. And as you take that step to do that, he will fill you with his spirit. He will put peace back into your heart. He will put self-control into your heart where you can be at a place where you can see situations come your way and go, that's not how I wanted that to go, and yet go, okay. Well, Lord, it had to pass through your hands before it got to me. So let's just take a deep breath and go, okay, where now, Lord? rather than just reacting. Amen? Amen? Amen. Lord, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters, and of course for myself, Lord, that we would all be those who cease from anger. Lord, if you, if you have brought up and convicted us in areas that we have not ceased from anger tonight, whether, Lord, it's in our marriage, in our parenting, you know, in our interactions with family members and friends, Lord, if this has been anyone's battle tonight, then, Lord, as they're committing to you, saying, God, I choose to cease from anger. I choose to forsake wrath. I'm going to abandon it. I'm going to leave it on the side of the road and keep driving. Or if that is the commitment they're making to you right now, God, will you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Will you fill them with that peace that's better than understanding? Will you fill them, Lord, with self-control, that self-mastery, Lord, where they, they keep their body under and they can live in such a way that they're not ruled by any maelstrom, but that your love is what rules in their heart. Lord, you said, blessed are the merciful. Help us to be people who are merciful, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.